Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So we've been in this series, Form and Fire, where we've talked about what it's like for us to be a spirit-filled church, to live the spirit-filled life. And one of the hurdles that has come up as we've been having this conversation is the around the idea of the Holy Spirit and spirituality in general in the face of a culture that has become increasingly secular. And so this whole message is going to be entitled The Spirit of the Age. We're going to be looking at some of uh, the, the cultural narratives that have influenced how we show up to scripture and how we show up to the Spirit of God. And our hope is that by revealing some of those things, specifically how we got here as a culture, that we'd be able to see some of our own biases and tendencies uh, so that we could more um, adequately open ourselves up to all that God has for us. So I want to dive into that question, how did we get here? Not as a church, but as a culture, as the Western culture. Andy Crouch, in his new book, talks about how we sit on top of the precipice of three different revolutions. The first one was the financial revolution that happened in the 1500s, where uh, currency shifted from trade, uh, from shifting from, uh, you know, trading a piece of cattle for some uh, grain, and it was highly relational and personal to really the advent of currency. It was the first time uh, that we saw, although currency had been around for hundreds of years before that, it became the primary means of how trade was done. The second revolution that happened is the Industrial Revolution that happened more in the 1800s, where people left uh, the, the, the farms and the rural areas and started moving in droves to these cities because of the advent of the machine and the factory, and it began to disconnect production from human ability and power to the power and ingenuity of a machine. And then the third revolution, and the most recent, is what Andrew Crouch calls the computa uh, com computative revolution, or the information revolution, that is the dawn of the internet, the dawn of really the technological revolution that we're sitting in here. And that moved information away from the community, something that you would get uh, through things like wisdom and through the tribe you were a part of, and maybe even through experts that had been identified through your community, to information was now accessible to anyone from everywhere and the world has never seen that. And so the argument he makes in his book is that these three revolutions, although they, they have made huge advancements into the amount of wealth and well-being there is in a material sense, it has also moved us further away from the ability just to be human. It's largely moved us away from relationship, not towards us. And so it should not surprise us that as these revolutions have continued to 
um, give us the promise of human flourishing and human advancement it has also created within us this sense of angst this sense of why are things not as they should be and and in tow with all of these more economic revolutions there's been a psychological revolution there's been a philosophical revolution that has taken place hand in hand with that you see in the 1500s uh, before the, the dawn of the printing press and the shift in currency and the renaissance and all these things we lived in what historians called the enchanted world where the spiritual world and the physical world were not separated but very much entwined for better or for worse and that as from the 1500s on, as we moved from the enchanted world and era into the modern era, into now the postmodern era, there has been this increasing thread of what we call secularism. And secularism is the thought and the philosophy of the world around us without the divine, without the spiritual, that God is not present in us. And so... Regardless of how you grew up, you have largely, I have largely been influenced by a culture that is trending towards secularism. This idea that it's only what you see and what you can produce that correlates to reality. It's not the divine. It's, it's not, there is not some sort of invisible world happening at the same time. And so because of that, it has made our ability as followers of Jesus to show up to the conversation of things like the Holy Spirit or spiritual gifts and that there is this kind of subconscious uh, kind of breaking system that we're like well wait, wait a minute I don't know if I appreciate this but this is a new relatively new uh, hurdle that human beings have had in the past few hundred years and so what I'd love to do is I would love to kind of trace for you the the narrative of secularism how we got here in that certain uh, worldview and philosophy uh, so that it better helps us understand that this did not just happen overnight nor has the rest of the world thought like this for most of human history and the other thing I want to point out is that secularism is not an us versus them mentality you see all of us want to show up and be able to find a sense of purpose and happiness Blaise Pascal said that all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both. This is the motive of every action of every man. And one thing that I love is that in John 16, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit as the one who is the spirit of truth which means truth is how we show up to reality. And so Jesus presents a vision of happiness, or maybe better understood, human flourishing. And I, the hope of today's message is to compare and to contrast the secular vision of human flourishing versus the Holy Spirit's vision of human flourishing, and which one best correlates with reality, meaning which one is true. I love what um, what um, what was said recently in, in in Wolf's book. He's a Yale scholar, and he kind of creates this image should show up on your screen of of how humanity shows up to flourishing, and he kind of gives us this this 
this view of three different angles that human flourishing is life led well, the agentile, life feeling as it should, the effective, and life going well, the circumstantial. And it takes all three of these in order for us to be able to, to show up to what is human flourishing. Uh, now, before we dive into what we believe the Bible and the Spirit calls us into, I wanted just, just to be able to ask ourselves, well, what is the secular narrative towards human flourishing and how we got there? One of the big shifts that happened, again, around the 1500s, was when Rene Descartes famously wrote the line, I think, therefore, I am. And that sentence was kind of this uh, prophetic... Uh, turning point as a culture that reality was going to slowly start to disconnect from the people that you were connected with and your sense of reality was more and more start to grow to who you thought you were and what you thought life was. This is around the dawn of the Enlightenment and around this time began to be this shift from the enchanted world where everyone across the globe unanimously believed in some sort of divine higher power and it slowly began to shift away from um, at the dawn of things like the sciences and things like that and reasonability that oh it's actually it's what we think it's how we think that is what tethers us to reality and there are some significant voices Along Descartes from the 1500s came someone named Voltaire and, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud and Michael Fou Michel Foucault. And so just a, just a quick note on these because we did not just show up to, we did not just show up to this way. And so just a, we already talked about René de, um, Descartes. And so the next one that really showed up was Voltaire. Voltaire was one of the first to introduce and defend the idea of religious tolerance, which was a revolutionary new idea. And then after Voltaire came Rousseau. Um, and Rousseau, in his day and age, where the community was held higher than the individual, began to start writing um, underneath the influence of Rousseau, this idea that actually the community um, is going to be largely detrimental if we don't value the individual. In his book, The Confessions, Rousseau writes, I am resolved on an undertaking that has no model and will have no imitator. I want to show my fellow men or man in all truth of nature, and this man is to be myself. The particular object of my confession is to make known my inner self exactly as it was in every circumstance of my life. It is the history of my soul, that I promised and to relate it faithfully. I require no other memorandum. All I, need, all I need do, as I have done up until now, is to look inside myself. I mean, massive shift. That there was that moving away from the community to the individualized self. The next two names are probably one of the most two famous, Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche. Two of the most influential voices when it comes to forming the secular mind. Carl Truman, in his book, Strange New World, says these modern aspects of selfhood, the rejection of human nature as having a moral structure and the related beliefs that moral codes are inherently oppressive, 
find profound <clears throat> theoretically a theoretical expression in the thought of two 19th century figures in particular, Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche. We all live in a world where many of their basic, basic ideas are now our cultural intuitions. Um, by the way, Carl Truman's book, Strange New World, is a fascinating read in, in case this subject really interests you. How did we get here? Um, Karl Marx is most famously known for creating the system of communism. Um, one of his main ideas was this, this sense of uh, removing oppressive authority. And one of those oppressive authorities was religion. He said, if religion is one major means by which the current <clears throat> unjust set of economic, <clears throat> excuse me, economic relations is maintained, then at the heart of any drive to transform society must lie a pungent and effective criticism of religion. And around the same time, um, in a different country, <clears throat> Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, famous for his nihilism, rejected all forms of religion and moral philosophy. Uh, he's most famous uh, for his his little excerpt that he wrote um, wrote in the Mad Men, where he has this line: he "says God is dead and we killed him." And oftentimes we imagine him saying that triumphantly, uh, but it's him grappling with the reality that the secular trend had removed God, and what were the ramifications of that. Um, Sigmund Freud was, was massively influential, although m almost all of his theories ended up being debunked and proven um, not true. Uh, his influence on society has continued to have an effect, again, of the psychological, uh, psychologicalized self and how we think about sexuality. Um, and then the last one I just wanted to mention is Michel Foucault, who died in 1984. But before he did, he's a French philosopher that, that largely was responsible for postmodernism, where not only did he um, have a high, high view of the individual self, but also a deep sense of um, a skeptical sense of being able to know truth at all. And so and you might be like, well, why are you bringing all of these people up? And I think the reason is for us just to realize that this did not just happen overnight, but that there has been this 500 year trend experiment, philosophical experiment of what, uh, what would it look like for us to remove the individual from the community, to remove power from the divine and to place all knowledge, all awareness deeply embedded into the therapeutic self, what we think and how we feel about ourselves, and to slowly reject any sort of thing that could be viewed as some sort of oppressive system, whether that's a religion or an institution, whether that's, whether it's God himself, that anything that comes against who I feel that I am is ultimately a threat. Dr. Ted um, Tarnu in talking about these philosophies says that most people are not driven by well understood and articulated philosophical worldviews. More typically, people express their life philosophy in what we call a street philosophy. And so we live under the street philosophy of modernism and postmodernism, which is tied together through this idea of secularism, this godless approach to life. And so 
the question is, if this is true, why does this all matter? Why does it matter to the street philosophy that we have subconsciously inherited? John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lie, says this, when we believe truth, that is the ideas that correspond to reality, we show up to reality in such a way that we flourish and thrive. We show up to our bodies, to our sexuality, to our interpersonal relationships, and above all, to God himself in a way that is congruent with the creator's wisdom and good intentions for his creation. As a result, we tend to be happy. But when we believe lies, ideas that are not congruent with the reality of God's wise and loving design, and then tragically open our bodies to those lies and let them into our muscle memories, we allow an ideological cancer to infect our souls. We live at odds with reality. And as a result, we struggle to thrive because reality does not adjust itself to our illusions. So this is, this is the hypothesis that I would like to propose to you, is that we are living at odds with reality, which is why it is a struggle to show up and thrive as a human being. Ephesians 5.18, Paul gives encouragement says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And although I believe Paul wrote that specifically to them not drinking alcohol, it also makes me wonder that if we miss out on being filled with the Spirit because we have become intoxicated with something else. And I wonder if we have become intoxicated with the secular narrative of our day. A narrative that continues to empower the individualized self, removed from community, removed from God, and left up to our own devices to think whatever we will, rather than submitting ourselves to a loving and divine being who created the heavens and the earth, who gave us his holy scriptures and ultimately filled us with his spirit to live a life according to which he calls flourishing, rather than what we feel is flourishing. And so we're in conflict with this, these two things going back and forth. St. Augustine says, For wherever the human soul turns itself other than to you, it is fixed in sorrow, even if it is fixed upon beautiful things. So in summary, what does a secular frame life offer? Well, it's, its sense of freedom is ultimately hollow. It's not freedom to do something. It's just freedom from everything until eventually there's nothing left. Its formation? Its formation is into hedonism. It's into self-pleasure and self-gratification and instant gratification. And lastly, flourishing. That its flourishing is momentary. I mean, there is the joke around the, the, um, the popular phrase of YOLO, you only live once, uh, but it actually quite literally summarizes the secular end goal, the telos of the secular narrative, is you only live once. And so your flourishing is momentary, is temporary. So take everything you can now because there's nothing afterwards. So what's the opposite? If the secular frame, framework is that freedom is hollow, formation is into hedonism, and flourishing is that is, flourishing is momentary, well then what the Bible offers is a freedom that is true formation into love and a flourishing that is eternal. Our main verse I want us to focus on today is in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. In talking about the Holy Spirit and what does it mean for our lives, Paul says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, 
And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so I want to look through these three different themes that all show up in that verse. The first one is that the freedom that is offered through life in the Spirit is true. It's not hollow. And the reason that we know that in Galatians 5, it says, It is for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He goes on to continue that your, your freedom that you have been given is not for you just to throw off any sort of thing that could cause resistance to the, to the fleshly desires you have. You've been freed by Jesus, an act you could not do yourself, for a purpose. Which means your freedom is attached to a mission and an assignment rather not just an escape and i think oftentimes we dilute the idea of freedom especially within the secular narrative is i just need i don't want anything that's going to stop me from what i want right now rather than freedom being something that invites us into what we want most right that's the idea of the spirit versus the flesh the flesh is what we want now but the spirit is what we want most which is ultimate freedom it allows us to live into the purpose of what god has done the second is that the, the spirit-filled framework versus the secular framework means that we have a formation into love. Verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image. So the telos is that we are being moved into Christ-likeness, which is ultimately what? It says that God is love. We are being transformed. In, and not into a vague abstract idea of love, loved as defined by Jesus on the cross, his crucifixion and resurrection. That is ultimately the definition we have of love. And so when we do that, we begin to say, okay, I want to be formed by that love, by that narrative, to live a cruciform life which means that we sit underneath the life and teachings of Jesus, the scriptures that he's provided us. Tim Keller says that contemporary people tend to examine the Bible looking for things they can't accept. But Christians should reverse that, allowing the Bible to examine us looking for things God can't accept. Then the sweet grace offered, the beauty of his love, will mean something to you. And so what happens is that the Spirit is transforming us into Christ's image. It means two primary things. Number one, I am the beloved of Christ. And number two, I am to be loved as Christ loved. I love N.T. Wright's uh, quote in, in competing with the kind of the, the dawn of secularism where Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. He says, for Christians, it is not, I think, therefore I am. It is, I am loved by God, therefore I am. Which leads just to the last thing, that flourishing is, it should not be momentary. It should not be temporal. Flourishing in the spirit-filled life leads us into eternity. And I think if you look at our culture's objection towards age and doing everything they can to combat age, I think it speaks to our fundamental belief in the secular narrative that that we want to fight against this thing. But if we believe that flourishing is eternal, meaning that even as our bodies decay, 
that our spirit is doing what? Being renewed day by day. We're moving greater and greater into a level of flourishing that will culminate in an eternal sense. This is why it says in that 2 Corinthians 3 verse, is that we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, meaning that we're not going to stop, that we're continuing on this trajectory, which is such a beautiful invitation for us. And so we sit in the spirit of the age versus the spirit-filled life, and I, I just want us to wrestle with that, hey, we did not arrive here overnight, but we have largely, within the church and outside the church, been influenced by this idea that we are to throw off anything that puts a burden upon us, challenges us, makes us feel like we have to change who we are, rather than gladly submitting under the hand and the loving wisdom of a creator, inviting us into a life of flourishing. And so the question I want to pose to you today is, what narrative is leading towards human flourishing best? The precipice of the revolutions that we've been on, both industrial and philosophical, have they led to human flourishing? Or perhaps, is there an invitation to another way? Or as a people, we realize that there is more than what we see, or can produce, or we can touch. There's, there's an ancient reality that we must recover, that the Spirit of God is continuing to be at work, and when we open ourselves up to Him, I think that recently I came across an excerpt from Matthew Perry's new book, um, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, where he's writing about kind of the bottom of the barrel for him when it came to his journey with drugs. And Matthew Perry writes this, God, please help me, I whispered. Show me that you are here. God, please help me. I started to cry. I mean, I really started to cry. That shoulder-shaking, kind of uncontrollable weeping. I wasn't being crying. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. Decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness and all was being washed away like a river of pain gone into oblivion. I had been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. And this time I had prayed for the right thing, help. Eventually the weeping subsided, but everything was different now. I stayed sober for two years based solely on that moment. God had shown me a sliver of what life could be. He'd saved me that day for all days, no matter what he had turned me into. He had turned me into a seeker, not only of sobriety and truth, but also of him. And I think that there's something beautiful to this thing where, I mean, I love Matthew Perry, his role in Friends and the movies you've watched. He's kind of the epitome of like, well, th this is the peak of secularism. And yet, in his own interpersonal life, he found himself some in, with a level of pain that no substance or drug could numb. And it was at the moment where he cried out in such a way, he says, I knew I was in the presence of God. And so my invitation for you maybe is just to just to become suspicious of the secular narrative and to become open to the beautiful invitation of the spirit to be transformed into ever increasing glory into the image of Christ so that you can continue to be formed into a person of love to have a flourishing that is eternal and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we recognize that we live in a strange world, yet you continue to be faithful to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to become increasingly suspicious of a narrative that would leave life void of you and flourishing void of you and become increasingly curious and drawn into a life that is marked by your spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you fill us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.